Alice started to her feet. She had never before seen a rabbit with a waistcoat pocket or a watch. Burning with curiosity, she ran after it, just in time to see it pop down a large rabbit hole. She went to follow, but received a Snapchat from her sister playing with the cat. Distracted, Alice forgot all about the waistcoated rabbit and went on to a less than successful career in recruitment. The end. Don't let silly distractions get in the way of great stories. With the world's largest selection of audiobooks, the difference is audible. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of George Ezra and Friends, the podcast, with none other than Elton John. Um, What an amazing privilege for me to sit down and talk with the man himself. Uh, We sat down for about an hour. So for those of you that are new to the show, my name is George Ezra. I'm a musician, I'm a singer, I'm a songwriter. I recently released my second album, Staying at Tamara's, which means I'm out on the road and I'm absolutely loving it. So for any of you that have come out to see us or that have bought the record, thank you very much. It means the world and it means that I'm busy. So yeah, thank you very much. But enough about me. Our guest this week, Elton John. Um, I, sh- I really want to tell you this story because it's one of the standout moments of my career so far. So I released my first album, and uh, I was on tour somewhere in Europe, I can't quite remember where we were, and my tour manager at the time came into the dressing room and he said, listen, Elton John's going to call and he wants to have a word with you. Now, this tour manager, Mr. Matt Johnson, used to love winding me up. (coughs) Matt, if you're listening, I remember me and him would kind of wind each other up, so I didn't believe him. Why would you believe that? I was this kind of 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid, you know, I didn't think Elton John would be ringing. So anyway, the phone rang and it was Elton John, but I, and I can't be blamed, I said, I really don't want to offend you, but is this really Elton John? (laughs) I just, like, it was too surreal. And the most amazing thing was, he just rung to say that he loved the album and to keep on doing what I'm doing. And I can't tell you how much that did for my confidence. I touch on it in in this episode, but I just, yeah, I wanted to tell you as listeners how much that meant to me and, you know, what an honour it was. So when I kind of, I reached out to Elton to see if he'd be up for the uh, podcast, because in previous episodes, both Giles Martin and Ed Sheeran both kind of cited his work ethic and his commitment to pop music and music and you know, keeping on top of everything going on around him. And it's fascinating, you know. So he very kindly invited me round to his place. Uh, I had to shoot off straight away afterwards to catch a flight for Dublin, because we were playing in Dublin the next day. But it was amazing, uh, very relaxed kind of time together. And I absolutely loved the conversation. It was very interesting and inspiring. Yeah, so without further ado, I feel like I've rambled a bit. Let's jump into the episode. As always, I just want to say if any of you are listening with kids about, so if you're, I don't know, if you've got the show on on a speaker behind you in the house, if you're pottering around the house, or if you're in the car and the kids are in the car with you, there might be one or two swear words or a few fruity stories. Um, But yeah, here we go, Elton John. 
this by maybe giving a bit of a ramble. There's a okay, point you I'd can like ramble to get as to. much as you like. I'm all yours. It's kind of um, on the podcast so far. Both Ed Sheeran and Giles Martin have been guests, and what we do who is who's the other one? Giles Martin. But, but what was fascinating was your name came up in both of those really? conversations. All good things. Yeah, all good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, with Ed, he was kind of drawing reference to kind of work ethic and release rate and how yeah. it kind of, he was referencing you and other artists as, you know, an in album a year is not well, a bizarre albums. thing. No, two, we did two albums. Two, yeah. yeah. So that was, I'd love to touch on that at some point. Okay. And Giles as well was talking about um, yourself and Paul McCartney, you mentioned, as people that uh, sit down and have always sat down and listened to what's being released, where it's being released, mm. who's releasing what. Yeah. And that, to me, it is amazing. Yeah. It, I find that extremely inspiring. Um, and I'd love to, to... There's a lot of questions that I'd like to ask off that. First, the simplest question is how do you do it? Do you sit down once a month? Is it a fortnight? Is it weekly? Do you? It's do every work? week. Okay. Um, is it scheduled? Huh? Is it a scheduled thing? Yes, it is. I mean, it's just, it's just part of my routine. Um, in England now, and, and worldwide, releases uh, on records or CDs, whatever, come out on Fridays. Mm -hmm. It used to be Tuesday in America and Friday here, but they've now aligned themselves to Fridays. So on a Friday morning, I get a fax that comes through here with all the new releases on it. And I highlight which ones I want, how many I want, which house I want it sent to, blah, blah, blah. Um, but also I go on Amazon before that and see what's coming out in the months ahead and write that down. I've got a book that I write and I'll show you it. And then in America there's a site called Pause and Play that has things that are coming out and I go again, write them down weeks before they come out and send my request to the office in LA. Um, I do the same with books and I do the same with DVDs. Um, and it's part of being a fan. It's all, I always get excited about release day. Um, and it's just, you know, ever since I was a kid, I loved records. Um, and records were part of my family life. And getting a record was a treasure. And I still feel that way about getting a CD. I, you know, things like if you want to get a hip hop record now, most of them, a lot of them don't come out on CDs. No, I know. It drives me you a bit no, crazy. And, and so you have to get the office to burn them because I okay. don't know how to. I don't download anything. Yeah. I've, n I've never downloaded anything yeah. and I wouldn't know how to. So I like my physical CD. And of course, now people, are, and like yourself, are putting things out on vinyl mm. straight away, um, which is great because I love vinyl. I've, I sold all my vinyl in 1991 as the first fundraising thing for the Elton John AIDS Foundation to someone in St. Louis, the whole lot. And then. Recently, I've started collecting again because I just love the sound of it, and so I've gone crazy about recollecting vinyl. But it's nice now that new artists put their albums out on vinyl because I like that's the way I like to listen to it. Other than that, I listen to things in the car. It's a long answer to a very short question, but yes, I just plan every week. Like tomorrow is, is new release day, so a quarter to nine, quarter to ten, I'll get a fax coming through from the office with the new releases. I'll, I'll highlight them. I'll phone the office up straight away, and then they get delivered that day. Amazing. And Amazing. yesterday I went to Rough Trade to pick up my vinyl in London. Yeah. Right. I, I just love, I've always been a fan. I think if you're a fan of music, and especially new music, um, I'm, I'm interested in the new. I know you're going to ask me about that, but I know all the old, and I love the old, it's all in my head, and I've been around, I'm 71 years old, so I know all the things back to front. 
But what I love, and um, that's why I do my Apple program, is to play new music mm. and encourage new artists and give them exposure because it's bloody hard now. They don't, you know, I went to see a band last night called Greta Van Fleet, who are a hard rock band from Michigan, three brothers and a drummer. Um, and they wouldn't get played on radio over here because there's no access for them unless they were played on, um, a, I don't know what station plays pop rock music. But So they're selling in America because they've been doing live shows and that's obviously the way forward for people to, you know, to, to get exposure. Um, but it's great, I mean, I found Khalid two years ago. Do you know Khalid? American teen record? Yeah. And I found him and I played that record and then I got in touch with him in El Paso. He came to my show, I interviewed him. Um, Christine in the Queens, another person I found. And, you know, you get in touch with these young artists, Sigrid. Um, I love... Yeah. I, and, and I interviewed her about a year ago. Um, um, when the, um, the Vibe record came out, um, Don't Ruin My Vibe. Um, and I, she was 16, it's like, oh my God. And she's, you know, it's like talking to people from another universe. But we have one thing in common, and that's the love of music. And that's been my life, really. You know, music, in times of solitude, in times of happiness, in times of sorrow, I always turn to music. And do you, you said then how you, you look forward, that's the, the thing that really yeah. gets you going. D does it ever happen where you wake up on a Friday and you go, fuck the charts, I want to listen to some whoever it is, Buddy Holly? Or, oh yeah, know. I can do that, I have yeah. the, but I, I must get the new stuff. Okay. It's imperative. Yeah. I want to listen, and I listen in, you know, I have a, a CD player in the car, six CDs, and that's where I listen to my stuff, or in the, on the system here. Um, but other than that, I, if I get something new on vinyl, um, I will play it on vinyl first. You'll be pleased to hear that one actually comes with a CD in it. And this one? one? Yeah, yeah, we make sure I don't think it. this one has a CD. I've already yeah, got yeah, the CD. Yeah, it will be in the wallet. Oh, in there? Yeah, yeah in, um, in, inside that bit. But it blew my mind this time. My record label will, like not, will be putting it out on vinyl, CD, and cassette. Cassette? <laughs> yeah. I know, cassette. Fuck, why cassette? I <laughs> well, made it Because cassettes. collectors are... Their own I already had the CD, but yeah, um, yeah. Oh, there you go. Um, and you kind of touched on it just then, but... So did that start as a kind of childhood obsession? Were you somebody that would record the charts on your radio? Would you? I, no, I never taped anything on the radio because as I said, I'm not incapable of doing that. But I, I thought that was cheating, so I'd rather buy the record. But ever since I grew up, we had a radiogram in the early days with 78 RPM and a radio. And there was always music in the house. Um, my dad was a trumpeter in a band. So in the 50s, it was dance band music, um, Guy Mitchell, singers, you know, great things, Frank Sinatra, Doris Day, people like that, Johnny Ray, Frankie Lane. And then, of course, um, I loved all that kind of stuff because that was the only music I was exposed to. And then, of course, Elvis Presley came along and changed the whole damn thing. And my mum used to buy a record a week on a Friday, and she came home with Heartbreak Hotel. And she said, I heard this in a record store. I've never heard anything like it, and I had to buy it. And it was just amazing hearing that, and that changed my whole life. And then, of course, being a piano player or a kid playing the piano, then Little Richard came along and Jerry mm -hmm. Lee Lewis yeah. and Fats Domino, and then, wow. And I saw all those artists, apart from Elvis, I saw every major artist at the Harrow Granada when I was a kid. They used to have package tours that came around, British ones, Americans. And I used to go with my mates from school, and it was half a crown to get in, in, uh, in the circle. Five bob in the stores. And I uh, used to see, I saw every single soul, Motown, rock and roll artist. I saw Eddie Cochran two weeks before he was killed. Everyone except Elvis Presley I saw. Amazing. 
And you, you and you, so you had a group of friends outside of your family that were also into. Oh it. yeah, it was the, the fifties were an explosive time in music. It's like wow, this is a new kind of music. So everybody bought records. My friend Michael Johnson at school um, came into the playground one day with a, a record on Parlophone. He said. I've got this record, they're going to be the biggest band in the world, and it was the Beatles' Love Me Do, and it was before it charted. <laughs> and he was, I think he's number four in their fan club. And I listened to it, and I went, hey, that's not bad. And then he was, it's like, I can remember it as plain as day. The Parlophone record of Love Me Do, um, and that was how it was. We all used to, I never liked swapping records, because I didn't want my record to get damaged. I was yeah. very pristine with my records. Um, yeah, but it was an exciting time. Because we lived in the 50s, which was kind of a conservative time. Yes. And then suddenly this exciting music happened, and it was all from America. Yeah. We had British copies of it, but it was all from America. And so it started with rock and roll, and then it got into soul music and blues music, and with me and my band played blues originally, then soul music. And so I was exposed to everything. And you, you said that it, a lot of it, or all of it, came from America, but you're part of a generation of British musicians that took it and made it their own. Yeah. Do you remember that feeling of when you're, you're old enough now not to be just listening to it, you're imitating, doing your own version, well, we, creating? We were, yeah, we all were inf influenced, everybody. The Beatles, the Stones, they all, on their first albums, they recorded um, covers of American records. The Beatles did Shirelle's uh, records and Cookie's records. The Rolling Stones did Chuck Berry records and a Beatles song. And we were all, every band, I mean, I played in a band called Bluesology that started off playing blues music and then started playing Wilson Pickett and soul music and Knock on Wood. And uh, I, my first shows, um, playing that kind of music, we're backing people like Patti LaBelle, Billy Stewart, Major Lance, Wilson Pickett, Lee, Lee Dorsey. So I grew up backing those people, watching them play, and listening to that sort of music. I was a complete anorak when it came to soul music, and most British people were. Those artists were more popular in England sometimes than they were in America, um, and I loved that. You play a club in Manchester like the Twisted Wheel or the Mojo in Sheffield, which was owned by Peter Springfellow, and the kids were so hip, and they would know everything back to front. That's where Northern Soul came from. Um, Britain, Britain had an obsession with soul music, which is great. And I did think. it feel underground? It did to start with, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then it just, you know, we kind of helped it make it mainstream in a way that we supported those artists. And then there was programs on television like Ready, Steady, Go, where people came over and sang live, like Marvin Gaye and the Four Tops, um, and, and all those great soul people. And it was like, wow. And you know, the, it was such, from the late 50s, 60s, 70s, it was an extraordinary outburst of creativity mm. and fusion. Um, and, you know, soul music tried, you know, the Undisputed Truth. Motown went experimental. Marvin Gaye did the What's Going On album. The Beatles played with Ravi Shankar. Everyone was kind of, Miles Davis was doing kind of funk music. Everybody's kind of, it was so exciting. And stereo radio came in. Mm. I mean, you're, you know, you're, when Stereo Radio came in America, it was just like, wow. I mean, it was so exciting to hear something on a stereo FM station that would play everything that an AM station wouldn't. They would play something from my album. They would play Frank Zappa. They'd play Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, The Beatles. But they would play album tracks. Mm -hmm. On AM radio, a single's life would probably eight weeks. Really? So, you know, you don't get, you know, I mean, Budapest, how long was that in a chart? I'm the wrong person to ask, but longer well, than I anticipated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that hinders an artist. I look at Alanis Morissette, mm. how long that album, they took five or six singles off that album and kind of 
instead of moving on quickly to the next one, or taking three or four singles instead of five and six, it, it, I think that impairs an artist because it. You know, you get someone like Ed um, Sheeran, and he wants to make records like we did, two a year. And it's harder to do that now because records stay in the charts on the radio so long. It's it's really hard saying that, you know, releasing more than a record a year because mm. what you end up doing is people haven't stopped listening to the first. No. So you, it's a hindrance. Your second one kind of yeah. gets in the way. I know. But it's because radio play it too long. But I think that's a result of the playlists on Spotify because yeah. they're governed by playlists that people are listening to yeah. and that's why Drake can be number one right. for however long right. and it, it kind of just stays there. Yeah, but American radio is to blame as well on the AC chart which is the, like the middle of the road chart, Ed Sheeran is still number one uh, on Shape of You is still on the chart, it's like why, you know, how many times do you want to listen to this? Uh, but I think that's why I find it so fascinating, your commitment to sitting down and listening to new music, because I don't think that that's like a, the, the norm of people listening. I don't think that's how people consume music. No, they I, listen to things over and over and like, over again. Here's a record, I'm going to listen to this. But they sometimes only listen to two minutes of it as well. Yeah. They don't listen to the whole thing. Their yeah. attention span has gotten to the point where they listen to things on their phone, which is I mean, the worst place to listen to it. If you make a record, you do not want people to listen to it on a phone. You want them to listen to it on a nice system, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I don't, the, the, I'm, my memory of being kind of 14 and looking at music is this phenomenal world that I never thought I would be a part of. And not, I just... I didn't mind that either. Yeah. I just saw it as this big thing that right. you had to be tapped on the shoulder and invited in. Right. Did you ever kind of second guess trying to perform or getting up and doing it? Was there? I never was going to be a performer. I mean, I was an organ player with my band um, and I sang a couple of songs and I was the lead singer on our and wrote the first two Bluesology singles. But we had another singer called Stuart Brown who was the main singer. When I left the band to become a songwriter, that's, I didn't vi envisage being an artist. I thought, I'm going to just write songs for other people, and I met Bernie, and you know, the first couple of years we were told to write songs for the Hollies and Silla Black, and we were hopeless at it because we weren't that kind of writers. And then we were writing the songs that we liked and leaving them to the side, and, and, and a, a lovely man called Steve Brown joined Dick Dane's Music, heard the songs that we were writing for ourselves and said, forget this other crap, you're useless at it. And we were. And we hated it, um, but we, it gets us our 15 quid a week from the publishers. So I had, to, in those days, I made the first album, Empty Sky, and then in those days you had to get a, go on the road and promote it. So I got a band together, Nigel Olsen on drums, Dee Murray on bass, and started doing shows. I was kind of, it all happened accidentally. I never wanted to be set out to be Elton John, humongous star. Um, you know, in the early days, I was still red. I didn't change my name till about 1972, legally, to Elton John. Um, but it, it was an incredible psychological thing, changing my name from Reg, which I hated, to Elton, which I loved, because I just hated Reg. It's such a shitty name. Sorry, all Reg's out there, but <laughs> it's shit. Um, and, and when I became Elton, that was it. Did, did it feel like putting on it, a new yeah, suit? Like, like being Superman. Okay. Uh, it was like the cape came on and wow. And, of course, when the cape came off and I came off stage, it was difficult because I was still red, basically. Um, so I had all those years of being famous and so quickly and working so hard and loving it all and then realising that, whew, I've spent the last five years doing everything except having a life. 
um, and it caught up with me. But I survived it because I kept working and I kept making records. Yeah, I've, in the closest thing I can relate it to is this the kind of fallow time between my first record and this one. I just hated not having something to do. In, yeah. in, I've missed. Well, momentum is everything. Yeah. I and mean, and having a purpose and having a yeah. reason to. Because you know, in the early days, we made the Elton John record, which was our second album, and your song became a hit in America before it came a hit in England, and I became kind of an overnight sensation in America uh, by playing at the Troubadour Club. But I still had to work for two years playing second on the bill. Thank God to people like Eric Clapton and the Kinks and Leon Russell to earn my corn, because America is an you can be popular in New York and Chicago and LA, but you know the Midwest, you can be, you know, you have to earn your corn there. So I did that. But we, you know, the, it was relentless. Not only were there, out, I think, 17 albums in about eight years, separate singles, different B sides, touring, interviews. It, but it was because radio was so quick changing records, it, it, it made the whole process seem much faster. Mm -hmm. It was like now it's slow mo. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, it was like, we were, we were kids in a candy store. We loved it. I was playing with people that I loved. I was meeting people that I couldn't believe I was meeting. People were recording our songs. I was having a great time. Um, and of course, it was music and I loved it. And America was where all the great music that I loved came from. Um, and the momentum that you're talking about, the downtime between this and the first, is it because you, they didn't want you to write an album? No, or? not at all. I really struggled writing on tour. I, yeah. I just everything was so new to me right. that I was just like, keep your head down and focus on promoting this record mm. and touring mm. this record. And then I kind of I don't know what it was. I think I need to be on the move to be creative. So I need to right. be seeing new things, meeting new people. But instead, right. I went home and was sat there. Yeah. And so nothing was coming creatively. Right. And you start to beat yourself up about it. Well, in the, in the days where I was playing, you go out to a club or you go to the speakeasy and you meet other artists. And it was a social scene as well. And it was exciting. And that kind of gone by the ball. And the people, there's no club where artists go to. In my days, there was a speakeasy, Scotches and James and people like that. And you, you went out there and, and you mixed with other artists. And it was exciting. Or um, Freddie Mercury and I used to go to um, a club called Montbury's in, um, God, where is it? In, in, in God, where is it? German Street. And had a blast. And we would mix together and meet other people. So that kind of social thing's gone now. People tend to be a bit more singular and isolated. Um, which is a shame because I think when artists come together, especially musicians, mm. there's a common bond. Mm. I really do think that. And it's like when you're saying you went to see Sam Smith and he did something for you. I mean, whenever I meet these musicians like Ed or Sam or, or anyone young, um, we have this common bond and it's, it's never changed for me. And it's, it's great. Musicians are so easy to talk mm. to. Actors are a little bit more... They never know who they are because they're doing something different every time. And I'm not decrying what they do, but there's a, a thing when you walk in a room with a bunch of musicians like this band last night, Greta Van Fleet. They're 20 years old, and and and, but I have a bond with them because I, I'm a musician, and it's you know it was easy to to cut through the eyes, and I think. The social side of, of that has gone a bit, and that's a shame. I, I recognise that. I, I see that the social side isn't quite there, as, or what I was anticipating it might be like. When you, know, you look back in the 60s and the, and the Stones and the Beatles, everyone used to hang out together. Yeah, they used yeah. to go to party together, and it yeah. was like, it was exciting. And now things are a little bit more you know, career. Uh, you know. I think something that puts me off the social side of it is that. It really feels like nothing's allowed to exist just as a moment. Everything's captured on somebody's phone. Oh. Or you're, and it really puts me off. 
I, I know where you're coming from. I hate mobile phones. Yeah. I hate camera phones. I don't go out anymore. No. I mean, I went out last night and people took my picture of the show. That's okay. Um, but there, are, there is no privacy anymore. But in those days, there was nothing like that. When I started out, there were no mobile phones. There was no kind of paparazzi. We had it so easy. And it kind we, of feels like you can, you can afford to mess up. and You, you know, can afford to be out of your mind yeah, and yeah, behave yeah. extraordinarily badly yeah. in public. And nobody would be able to take a photograph. Yeah. Which I did many times. <laughs> I don't and, believe and, you. And, <laughs> and yeah, and unfortunately, that's all changed with the advent of technology. Um, but it's also, you know, I love having a dinner and getting young pe and people mm. together and having a chat over dinner. That's nice. Mm -hmm. And we should do that. That'd be mm. nice to have a, you and Sam and Ed down for dinner and That'd stuff like that. It'd be lovely. Yeah. I love doing that. But going out now is an effort. Did, before you kind of entered the world uh, and people knew who you were, was celebrity culture something that appealed to you before you'd experienced it yourself? Well, there was no celebrity culture as such. Celebrity, the word celebrity didn't exist. You, um, you were either successful or you're not. Now the word celebrity, you can be someone of, you know, Love Island. I don't know who they are. For me, a celebrity is someone who's top of the game, mm. a top film star in, in music or whatever, an actor. Um, I hate the word celebrity. Mm. I hate, you know... I I, the reason I started the podcast originally was because there was a point when I realised anybody doing anything at the top of their game has to put so much into it mm. in any walk of yeah, life. Yeah, what? You've got to work for it. And the mm. people that don't work for it and get it instantaneously are the ones that go <laughs> like that. If you don't put... You know, those years I had in a van going up the M1... Um, I was so, it was so long ago, there wasn't an M6. There was, you had to, there, when they built the M6, there wasn't a link from the M1 to the M6, so you had to go on through Brown Hills, and it took forever. <laughs> it was just a one-lane road. Um, but those days, I look back, and I was talking about it yesterday to, um, to someone, and um, they were the kind of the backbone. Of, they, they, they gave me all the experience needed. God knows how we afforded to exist. Um, but we were making music. We did sometimes two or three shows a day backing these people. Mm -hmm. um, but the work ethic was great. And so when I was ready and, and, and I became successful, I knew what to do because I'd worked so hard for it. It wasn't, oh, what do I do now? I'd been seeing all these other artists playing with them and thinking, right, here I go. And it was, uh, you know, I wasn't just thrust into it. I was, I'd work really hard Because of it. how hard that, you know, three shows a day and driving around in the back yeah. of the van. And Once you, you arrive in your own success, mm. did it actually feel a bit easier because you'd done that yeah, of course. slog oh, Yeah, of course. I knew what to do. I wasn't afraid of performing. Mm. Um, I kind of threw the mantle off being the organ player in Bruzology and became who I was. Um, because, and I'd watched all these great performers up close, and, like Paddy LaBelle and Billy Stewart and all those people, and I'd seen how they work an audience and do this, and Long John Baldry, who I back, they gave me so much information in the back of my mind, and, and uh, I, you know, it's important to work an audience, it's important to chat to an audience, it's important to put something into it, you know. There was a point um, on my first record where I received a phone call from you. Yes. Uh, just to say that you'd listened to the record and that you enjoyed it. Yeah. Keep on keeping on. Yeah. Kind of thing. And I can't tell you how much that did for my confidence. A conversation like you're talking about last night. Mm -hmm. It's it's moments like that that it it 
it really made me feel like, oh, and I'm sure I performed differently that night. You no. know, I can't. Of course you did, because when I was starting out in America and I was beginning to become successful, I, my album was One Above All Things Must Pass by George Harrison, which is one of my all-time favourite yeah. records. And I kept looking at Billboard going, this can't be true. And I got a telegram telegram from George saying congratulations love George the band who I idolized came to see me in Philadelphia I toured with Leon Russell who was my idol and it was so sweet to me Neil Diamond introduced me the first night at the Troubadour because he wanted to that ratification from your peers of someone that you really think are great makes you give you think okay what I'm doing is all right then mm. and of course it gives you confidence and it's important for us um, people like myself to do that and I love doing that I love phoning people up I love I played with Christine at the Queens at the Roundhouse and Rosie Lowe um, and Parker Millsap and who was the other guy Gallant yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Gallant and I you know I played them they I played their songs they played mine one of the greatest nights of my life and it's just it's important to tell young artists because it just it just gives them a little nudge saying okay I'm doing okay you know, and I had it, we played in Brixton two nights ago and there was a point just after sound check where my lighting engineer said, I really think you should come off stage and have a look at what we're doing behind yeah. you with the lights. And that made me perform differently because you realise for some of the show you're silhouetted, you're this like, yeah. and as soon as you're on stage you're elevated and you're yeah. two foot taller. It's a whole different and you're thing. Yeah, you've got, yeah. yeah. And to, I used to love that, go and see what the stage set looked like, what they were doing. It's important to check those things out. Um, it's all part of learning. I mean, listen, you're a baby. You're on your second record. You've only, you know, you haven't been touring that long. But you know, the new record. By the way, you're you're in a good frame of mind. The new record is so up. Mm. The first wasn't the f first was up, but this one is really, really, yeah. really up. Thank you. I think right. that was kind of a. I, I had this kind of, you know, I had a little hard time before this record, and I just realised the best thing to do is to sing yourself out of it. You're going to have to sing the songs every night. Right. Sing happy songs and yeah. Just looking at your album here, here it is. Second single. Um, so it will be Shotgun. Yeah. What about Don't Matter Now? We released that last year. Yeah. As a, like to get on festivals said, yeah. and stuff like that, and then we released Paradise. Right. So we're going to release Shotgun. Yeah. And then I think a song on there called Hold My Girl. Yeah, second track on side two. But Don't Matter Now, you could re-release that again. Amazing. Yeah. Because I was everywhere in the car, and pretty shiny people too. So you've got you, you don't have to worry about singles on it. Um, and the production is very simple, and it's great, and it's open. Well, that was something that I did. So the first record I recorded with a guy called Cam Blackwood. Yeah. And uh, there was a conversation of who do you want to produce the second record? Yeah. And I went, well, if it ain't broke. Don't, don't fix it. That's what's wrong with so many artists. Duffy being the first. I mean. Um, the guy from Suede, Bren, uh, Bernard Butler, produced her first album, which was fantastic. I mean, what an album. She ditched him. And he went, I made God knows how many albums with Gus Dudgeon before I switched. Because, if it's, as you say, the, the relationship between an artist and a producer is so important. Because you are, you're employing that person to become another ear. Because, as you know, when you write a song, it's very personal. It's like, and then you play it to someone, and they say, well, maybe you should change this bit. And you go, fuck off, I've just written this. <laughs> yeah, <I was> gonna <laughs> say. This is my song, shut up. Yeah. And then you calm down, and then you think, well, I'll try it. And it's, I don't know if it's the same, but 80, 90% of the time they're right, because you're so close to it. And that's what you ha having a producer is there for. You have to have someone who, who can hear. 
Yes. And can suggest without being shut down. Yeah. Otherwise, what's the fucking point of having him there? Do you still find that the last song you wrote is your best? You walk of away course. And I've never written yeah. a song better. No, yeah. You're always in search of the perfect song. I'm still in search of it. But, of course, your last work is what you're most fond of. Um, and my last work, the last three or four albums, have been some of the best albums I've made. But people haven't listened to them or they've been reviewed because... They just, I've made 37 albums. It's like, oh, not another fucking Elton John record. But The Diving Board and The and the Union and Wonderful Crazy Night are three totally different records. And The Diving Board is one of my favourite records ever. It's not commercial in any sense of the mm. world. And and I gave up being trying to be commercial or even thinking about it um, years ago because I just thought, no, at an age of 60-something, no one's going to play my record on AM radio, on, on radio well, anyway. I can do what I want. It's a great gift. And I'm really happy you brought those three records up. At the beginning of 2016, when touring had finished, I took myself away to Cornwall for a month. Yeah. I booked this cottage and I didn't yeah. leave it for a month. Yeah. And all I did was listen to the radio. Embarrassingly, I did about six 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzles. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. I just completely decompressed. Yeah. Uh, but Blue Wonderful was on, if not every hour, every yeah. other yeah. hour. And it soundtracks that little trip. Yeah. to the halftime break. This is the part of the show where I cut the conversation in two and I let you know what I'm up to and uh, everything going on in my world. As I mentioned earlier, my new album, Staying at Tamara's, is out. Um, and it's a collection of songs that, well, m mostly they were born from a trip I took to Barcelona. I went and lived out there for a month and it was amazing. And yeah, there's songs about escaping and dreaming and taking yourself away from everything going on around you. and. Uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I mean, as I record this, it is officially the fastest selling album of 2018 in the UK, which is just crazy. As I record this, it's already gold. Gold? So yeah, a huge thank you to all of you that have already gone out and bought the album. And if you haven't already, I invite you to go and do so. I don't know, I think you're gonna love it. And if you wanna be up to speed and know what I'm up to otherwise, the best place to look is georgeezra.com and now that's got everything you need. If you want photos, we've got photos. If you want videos, we've got videos. If you want tour dates, it's all there. All the information for festivals and everything coming up. There's also a link there to sign up for the journal, which is where I sit down once a week and just uh, write a letter to you about everything I'm doing. So that I will literally, in fact, I need to do it this week, today. So I'll write about everything we've been up to and it will land right in your inbox once a week. Um, and there's also the merchandise there. So if you, if you fancy a t-shirt, um, what else have we got? We've got mugs, tote bags, tea towels, every merch line, I'm gonna keep pushing this, every merch line needs a tea towel. I always buy a tea towel at gigs. I love them. So yeah, go and check all of that out. And uh, before I take up too much time, let's jump back into the conversation with Sir Elton John. how things come about. I right. know you've spoken about it. Uh, just whatever, you know, you feel... 
it's a mystery. It's an enigma. Um, I can't write lyrics, so Bernie, from the word go, has written. When do you say you can't? Well, I did. I kind of wrote blue eyes, baby's got blue eyes. That was that. And I wrote, don't go breaking my heart. And that was that. I'm a bit moon and June. I'm very verbose and I can give the most kind of intellectual interviews and stuff like that. But that is an, there's an art form to writing lyrics. Mm. And it's very disrespectful to say, well, you, people have said to me, we write lyrics. I said, believe me, if I could, I would. But I honestly can't. And it doesn't come naturally to me. Writing melodies comes so naturally to me. And besides that, I love writing some to someone else's idea. It gives me an idea of what to mm. write. And it's very disrespectful to say to someone, you know, oh, you should write the lyrics. Um, because, you know, it's very disrespectful to Bernie because his lyrics are wonderful. And I don't, the thing is, I never get tired of writing a song because I don't know what I'm going to get. Mm. So I get a new batch of, say, 15 lyrics. I go into a room in the studio and I look at the titles and I usually choose a title and then sit down and something happens. There's nothing pre planned. It's always been like that. If I haven't written the song in half an hour, I don't con continue with it. Mm -hmm. I sometimes come back to it. Do you, are you, do you communicate what the two of you are going through at that time or what you're feeling about? Um, or do you wait and see what lands when Wonderful Crazy Night, before that album, uh, I said, um, let's re write something cheerful, because mm -hmm. the world was really miserable and still is. I said, I really want, after the diving board, which was a very introspective record, I wanted to write something upbeat, and, and, and we did discuss that. Um, but in the future, um, I'm going to go back. So I usually write in the studio, because I don't write at all until I get to the studio. In the old days, I used to stockpile songs, and I used to... Write them and then remember them without writing the chord sequence down or anything. I just used to write, remember them, and I said to Bernie, in the, over the next two or three years while I'm on tour, just send me lyrics, whatever you want to write. They could be as long as possible, as short as possible. It doesn't matter. And I'm going to write, and I'm going to remember them. I'm not going to put them down to tape. I'm not going to put them on a DAT record, or there's no DAT anymore. But I'm just, I'm going to remember them and and go back to how I used to write. Um, if I can do that, I don't know if I can do that, but I, that's the kind of thing I want to go back to now. I want to stockpile about 20 songs for the next record. Um, and when I stop touring, 2018, 2021-22, um, I will sit down and make a record a year again. Because that's why I won't have to fucking travel anymore. <laughs> yeah. I just want to re make records. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it works. Yeah, I, I mean, I it's, know, it's, it's a mystery. And you know, I've never questioned it. No. And I've never had a writer's block. But then I don't go around. I don't play the guitar, so I'm not strumming around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, it's like not having sex for like a year, and then you suddenly go mad and have sex. And that's what the writing's like. It's like, yeah. well, I'm really looking forward to this. I can't wait to get into the studio and write some songs. It's not that I'm sitting down there every day. Some artists, like Rufus Wainwright, play and write every day. I'm not interested. No. I'm not interested. I have other things to do. I've got children. I've got a f charity. I've got other things to listen to. I collect things. I want to. I have a great relationship with my husband, um, and that's that's just as important. I, I think that's what worries me about people that write every day. It's like, well, where's their time to have a life to write about? Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, in the early in the early days, we wrote. I only wrote when I did an album. Yeah. Except the Elton John album we have and the Tumbleweed, we had the songs written.
and Madman. And then when David joined the band, we started writing at the Chateau d'Ereville in France. Uh, we went the first time we went away to record. And I would get up in the morning and Bernie would be typing. It's so funny. And I would be <laughs> have my breakfast and I'd go to the Defender Road and I'd start looking at the lyrics and I'd write a, start writing the song. The band would drift down to breakfast. There would be a drum kit, a bass kit, a big amplifier and a, 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 a guitar. And then we would learn the songs that way and just go walk over the road and record them. And it was extraordinary. It was like a little hit factory. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, but that was the first time we really started adding a guitar to my piano, bass and drums completely changed the way I recorded mm. and wrote. Uh, because before that, my live lineup of Nigel and Dee never played on any of the records. Tonky Chateau was the first time as a band we recorded. And you can hear the difference. You can hear the total change in direction. Uh, and it was fabulous. The timing was so great. My instinct to add... Uh, I'd gone as far as I could with three. I needed to change and I... One thing that I would have liked to have touched on earlier, and I forgot to mention it, regarding the difference between pop music for each era, is when I put on a song like Tiny Dancer, it's two and a half minutes until the big sing-along chorus comes yeah. in, but it still holds your interest. Oh, up don't to let that. the song go down to me. I mean, it's like, it's just a long time. But six I can get songs. away with releasing a single... I don't think anyone at the record label would allow me to entertain doing that. I don't think it would... We took, I mean, singles, Philadelphia Freedom's five and a half minutes long, Someone Saved My Life Tonight is six minutes long, and they played the whole thing, they didn't edit them. And they wouldn't say, oh, sorry, I'm going to do this because I'm feeling but in But because mood. I was king of the roof, they, didn't, they couldn't tell me not to, and so I had an advantage there as well. But there's, you know, I think you can do so much in a four and a half minute song, and if it's worth listening to. I mean, how long was Harry Styles' single? It was about six minutes, wasn't it? It's a bit too long, probably. Um, but he tried, you know, he said, fuck it, I'm going to release a six-minute single. Um, it depends what the song's like. You know. Yeah, yeah, I, um, I don't think you've written your emotive cl classic songs yet. I think, you'd, I think you, you've got that to come in your career. Yeah, I hope so. I no, you have. So because no. I, I feel like I learn, you know, a lot between the first and second, but I still feel like I'm in my understanding's in its infancy. Yeah, of course it is. But I think it's much more easy to write a miserable, sad song than it is to write a happy song, right? I think so, and I think I push myself to deliberately try and... Well, you play guitar, so yes. it's easier on a guitar. Yeah. On a piano, it's a nightmare. Um, what to write a happy song? Yeah, it's like you literally... I, I'm forced to the doom, and I love the doom, <laughs> and, and, and it's just not natural to write a three-chord, four-chord song on a piano. There's so many differences. Do you play piano too? Uh, no. No? No, I mean, I can do triads and yeah. occasionally do and that. It's something you should look into. Oh, just, I would love yeah. to. I'd, yeah, yeah just, just, just... Have you got a piano at home? I've uh, got a little keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, it would change the way you write a little bit. And it, but it's the difference between a guitar as an instrument and a piano. It's the two totally different yeah. instruments. Why the Ebley Brothers in those early days would re record all those three or four chord songs, Buddy Holly. There's only, and they're fabulous songs. Yeah. And they're simple. I find it so hard to stick myself to four, three chords, four chords. I can't. I'm, it's sonically different. And mm. because I was... You know, I, I had classical training as well. I, I, I'm mixed up with rock and roll and classics, which has kind of merged into one, and that's how I kind of formulated my style. There's a lot of different influences. There's all the soul, there's a the blues, there's rock and roll, but there's also a lot of classical stuff in my writing as well, and chord changes. And they're not easy songs. I mean, Yellow Brick Road is a hard song to sing. It's mm -hmm. like, I find it hard, let alone anybody else. 
I think the reason I use Tiny Dancer as an example, but it's throughout everything you do, there's kind of stories without it being once upon a time. You know, well, that's the thing about going back to Bernie. Well, this he's a storyteller. Is that what appealed to you? Yes, from he's the a storyteller because if you've got a story in front of you and a, you look at a, he, like a little movie, I always say it on stage in Vegas, when he gives me a, a lyric, I look, read it through, and I go, fast, slow, R and B, country, whatever, and the movie appears in my head. Um, and, and it suddenly, and I just hit a chord and I go from there. And I don't know why, but it always seems to work. Sometimes the song is not as good as you want it to be, as you know. You can't write great songs all the time. Um, but when it works, it's amazing. And it's having that story in front of you. It's like doing film music. I always was loath to do film music or film scores because I thought it would be a bit like doing arithmetic and too mathematical. But actually, when you've got the visual in front of you and writing the music to go with it, it's actually really interesting. And it's, it's a mixture of things. And I, and I really like doing that now. But I've, I just love that not knowing what you're going to get. For the next album, I'm excited because... I don't know what I'm going to get, <laughs> yeah. and it's like it's like I'm not thinking about it. Yeah. It's just it's going to arrive, and, and you, you know it may it. sell twenty five thousand copies or less. But for me, it's still as exciting as it was when we did yeah. Empty Sky, Elton John, Tumbleweed, whatever. It hasn't changed. And so you go to the studio with a batch of lyrics. Yeah, and then and that's when you start. Yeah, to the right diving board was recorded in three days, written and recorded in three days, basically all the tracks because it's mostly piano, bass, and drums. Mm -hmm. So I, we recorded four tracks and wrote four tracks a day and recorded them. Amazing. And, so, um, and that sounds really like boasting, but that's the way I write. Yeah, Tumbleweed yeah. was recorded in 17 days. Everyone's um, got a different... Everyone know. writes differently. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not showing off, it's the way I write. People take a lot of time writing a song and it comes out to be a masterpiece. Mm. I don't write like that. Mm. And not, I do everything quickly. Mm. You know, I, I live... My life, I'm writing out an autobiography and I'm recording it when someone's writing it for me and putting it down. And I kind of live four years in one year. When I look back on my life, I'm like, how did I do that? <laughs> did you fit that it's in? It's like, and I still do. Mm. And that's what I want to do when I come off the road is to try and slow down a little bit. And you know, Throughout this ad chat just now, you've mentioned the next record, the next project. Yeah. So you're still writing oh, of and recording. Course. I just don't want to tour anymore. I don't want to travel. But I want to write for the stage. I've got two, already written one. That's finished. We're just waiting for the director. I'm writing another one. I'm writing, going to write another album. I'm, I'm always going to be doing things musically. I just, it's not going to be on a yeah, travel yeah. basis. I, I, I can't ever see me. Music's been so important to me. It's been my whole life. I'm not going to shut it down. Yeah. Um, oh, that's brilliant to hear. I think that's, you know. And it's just the hunger still there. The hunger never goes. The hunger to get on the plane isn't so there. But the <laughs> hunger to, uh, to write and record and to listen, to listen and to be touched by music is never going to leave me. Amazing. I've got, um, I've got one question that my oh, girlfriend, yeah, girlfriend all right. asked me to ask. Yeah. Have you kept all your amazing outfits? Most of them are intact at the yard. Some of them I sold at auction. But yes, um, if funnily enough, it's. Um, we, we're just doing something with Gucci because Alessandro Michele, who designed for Gucci, we've become friends and he's so influenced by my old outfits. And we got them all. Um, I have a gallery across the road and we got all the stage outfits from the past. And he came over from Italy and walked through the whole lot and just went crazy. And so. There's now a, a capsule Elton John Gucci collection coming out uh, right now in the stores with my 
Elton John Gucci label in them. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't believe I wore some of those things. I it's mean, amazing. And I love it. And I still love part and parcel of me. What do you wear on stage? You're quite casual, aren't you? Very casual. And actually, for the first time on this tour that we've just started, I've gone out and bought the same outfit for each night to right. eradicate thinking about what I'm going to wear. Right. It's just this is the stage get up. No. It, which um, is what? Uh, essentially a blue shirt and some trousers. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the bill for the stage outfit is not there. No, I was, no. was going to say, I don't yeah. think Gucci's going to be... No, no, I don't think you're a Gucci kind of guy. <laughs> but that's who you are. Yeah, and uh, do so you know you what? You've got to be who you are. Absolutely, and I think... Uh, it's just amazing to you, you've still got them all. I think yeah, that's no, no, uh, no, you yeah. talking about changing your name I, and being mm. able to step on stage and go, here I am. It's yeah, the I, outfits as well. We've got two huge warehouses full of stuff. Six pianos, um stage outfits I mean you name it it's there um, and it's great for the archive because now as I'm getting older we're going to have exhibitions going around the world of it all and um, it's been useful I mean at one point I thought why am I keeping all this stuff but now as I in my latter years of my life it's going to be very useful for my children to see um, I, when I was young I started collecting Art Nouveau and Art Deco um, and I learned about art through that just by collecting it. And um, I used to get Athena production prints on the wall when we were living with Bernie and I were living at my parents' house and having Man Ray prints from Athena Productions. And uh, it's just, it's you know, become part of my life. Yeah. And uh, I sold everything I had in 1989 apart from four paintings. I lived in this house and it was a pop stars house with gold records and shit like that. And I thought, you know what? I was using then, and I was in a bit of a mess, but I'd, something told me to sell everything and redecorate this house and turn it into a, a, a nice house to live in and have guests. Um, and I sold everything, and then I when I got sober in 1990, everything I liked before changed, because I saw mm. things through a different way, and I started collecting photography and stuff. It's amazing how life unfolds before you, and there are certain segments of your life that this next period of my life, I hope, will be different. I'm not tied to rock and roll. Mm. I'm not tied, I, I love music, but I'm not tied to it. Yeah. I, I don't want, you know, that's why I want to come off the road. I don't want, 10 years ago, I would have probably died on stage, and just that's all I would have done. Having children has changed everything about my life, yeah, and it's just given me a new purpose and a new direction, and that's how my life has unfolded. There's been so many different sections in my life, you know, the career, the football, the AIDS Foundation, the collection, you know, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a kind of an open book in yeah. a way because I, I, I really live life on a grand scale. Yeah. Well, you just touched on the, the adjustment of, in 1990, going from using to not. And yeah. Did you find that that, well, of course, but what effect did that have on your writing? Um, was it like a fallow period of you having to... I didn't write, I did a whole year off, which I'd never done in my life, mm -hmm. and I just got concentrated on getting sober. Um, and I met a lot of new friends, and, I, and, and the first gig I did after, when I came back was at the Grosvenor House, or a charity thing. I was absolutely petrified, and, um, but it was fine. Um, and then the first album I made was the one, I think, after I came back. And I was uh, really nervous, but it, the process remained the same. So I know, it all fitted back into place. Whether or not the songs were as good as people, but I wrote The Lion King after that. So it's, yeah, there's been a lot of good stuff in the sobriety period. Um, but the heyday, you know, y you have a heyday and then you have the rest, and the heyday can never be replaced. Are you able to pinpoint when the heyday was? Yeah, from 70 to 76. That was the heyday. And then after that, I had the common sense to know hey, this isn't going to, I'm not going to have a number one record every time, straight away. Mm. 
I, I'd studied the charts enough, I knew the business enough to know that my records would find the level that they were at. Um, but because I was good playing live, I knew that my career would last. Um, and everything else was down to someone else. I knew someone else would take over. It was, it's cyclical, you know, if someone has three or four years of not being able to do any, you know, Ed will go through that and then people will get, he, you know, he'll have to find, mm. and I've talked to him about that. I said, you know, there will come a time when this won't happen all your time. Um, and uh, you have to be, accept that. And to be honest, you know, it's a relief. Mm. It's a huge relief, because the expectation on every record. When Michael Jackson said after Thriller sold like 60 million copies that the next one was going to be twice as big, I went, you fucking idiot. I mean, that's placing so much pressure on yourself. And if the next album sells 25 million, it will be considered a flop. And yeah. it's, like, it's like Alanis Morissette. She sold God knows how many records. I keep coming back to her because I think the record company completely ruined her career with taking so many singles from Jagged Little Pill, which sold so many copies. And then the next album maybe sold six or seven million and was con considered a failure. And that and is so wrong. And bite your hand off for six or seven Yeah, million. it's like, no, it's not a failure, but you can't live up to that. And it's like... You move on. You, it's like there was an article in in the Guardian about Lord, um, who's made two albums. She's at the start, a bit like you. She's at the start of her career. Her first album she made when she was sixteen, amazing record, just blew me away. And she's there was an article about her not selling out in America. Well, she's been put into fifteen thousand, sixteen thousand big arenas, and she's mm. been selling eight thousand tickets, which for her second album is not bad at all. But she shouldn't be playing 18,000 no. seats. She be, should be playing theatres like the Beacon mm. and leaving tickets, people wanting tickets. And making so them beautifully. Making them than the next one. You have to build that career and you just, you know, that's short-sightedness on the management's behalf mm. and it's putting a lot of pressure on her because it's really dismaying. It's never happened to me, but to see, go out there and see a lot of empty seats is the most dis Oh, it, it must be so dispiriting to see nobody in the balcony, just mm. everyone on the floor. And that's the way a career should be handled. She should, if I was handling her, she would be playing theatres and just selling out straight away and leaving people wanting more. Mm. And then the next time you play to 8,000 seats. And it's like, that's the way you do it. That's obviously what you're doing. Mm. You don't, do, you know, don't, you, you could probably do a show at the NEC if you wanted to. But you haven't, right? No, and we're kind of the next tour we're doing of the UK, the biggest gig of my life to date. Will be it's the O2? Be Wembley Arena. Wembley Arena, I love Wembley Arena. Yeah, I've never done it, and it kind it's, of... I prefer it to the O2 so much. It's a great little place to play, not little Amazing. place, but it's 13,000, 14,000 people, and it's, it's, I love playing there. Yeah. If I had that's it my way... So, it's so good to do that, yeah. that you're doing it sensibly. If you had it your way, what? I'd have a residency at Brixton Academy. <laughs> yeah, the Brixton Academy, like, I've never that, played Brixton Academy. Those size venues where it's kind yeah. of like... Is that 3,000, right? Five. And five. it's like it feels bigger than a theatre, but still like you're, you're reaching out to everyone. But if I, you know, my idea of doing shows when I come off the road is to do what Kate Bush did and play two, three weeks at the Eventum. Yeah, amazing. That would be my ideal thing. Brilliant. Because you can be in one place, you can put on, and not do the hits, do something completely different. I, if I had, if I came back to do a show and I just did the same thing again that I've been doing, I would kill myself. Mm. I want to expose some of the great songs that we've written that haven't been hits and people don't know as well. Uh, interspersed with a couple of classic. But play somewhere like that. I saw her show there when she came back and did the three weeks. And it was an, it was an occasion and it was great, the right mm. amount of people. 
I don't really want to, you know, do the 18,000 people mm. again. It's um, something that I've done, and it's fantastic, and I'm lucky enough to have been able to do it. I'll be doing it on the tour, and so the next thing I'm thinking about, that if, when I do do a show, it will be a residency mm. at somewhere like that. Or oh, I've never played the Brixton Academy. Maybe it's the Brixton Academy. It's a beautiful venue. Yeah? It smells a bit. Huh? It smells a bit. <laughs> but I don't care about that. 25 years ago, we had an album called Two Rooms, which was 25 years of us writing together. Mm -hmm. And Sting, um, Kate Bush, Phil Collins, John Bon Jovi, everyone, it was a huge album. So now we've been writing for 50 years. Um, there's a pop record and a, a country record. So this has got, hang on, let me put my glasses on. Pink, Logic, Coldplay, Alicia Cara, Ed Sheeran, Florence, Mumford, Mary J. Blige, Q-Tip and Demi Lovato, The Killers, Sam Smith, Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga and Queens of the Stone Age. And on the country one, which is fabulous, it's um, Little Big Town, Brothers Osborne, Marin Morris, who I love, Don Henley, Vince Gill, Miranda Lambert, Chris Stapleton, Leon Womack, <gasps> Casey Musgrave, Dolly Parton, and Miley Cyrus, Dirk Bentley, Roseanne Cash, Emmylou Harris and Willie, Nix, uh, Willie Nelson. Amazing. They take those. Yeah, absolutely, I will do. Florence's version of Tiny Dancer, and Mumford, someone say my life tonight. I'm so happy with all of the country one, is fucking phenomenal. I'm going to enjoy these a lot. Did you? Because as a writer, you know, it's. Um, we started off as songwriters, and I said early in the interview we weren't very good at it, but when someone. Has anyone covered one of your songs? That's how I heard of Sigrid. She did Budapest at Glastonbury. Really? Yeah, and I was just like, oh, God, she's done it better than me. It really? was like, yeah. Isn't it great that when someone... Oh, heard, it felt amazing. I don't care if it's on a music in an elevator or anything. It's just, if you've written it and someone else has taken the time to record it, it's an incredible compliment. Yeah. And it could be shit or it could be fabulous, but it still gives me a buzz. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. I, d I don't know if you heard at all, but there was, um, two or three years ago, there was a record that was Bob Dylan's lyrics that he had never sung, so all these pages yeah. he'd written down and different artists sung yes. them. And Mumford and Son, um, Mark I know, Elvis Costello did a track. Just they They've just done another one to, with Johnny Cash. Amazing. Which um, is coming out this week. Love it. Thank you, Autumn. Oh, you're welcome, my angel. Thank you. I mean, if you're listening, Elton, what do you reckon he is? I don't know. Maybe. If you're listening, Elton, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, I will never forget it. And it was a, a really insightful conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. And of course, a huge thank you to Warren Borg, who edits these conversations together. The editing extraordinaire. There's also Ocean Griffin, who helps put the podcast visuals together. So if you saw any clips on... Uh, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, then they are down to Oshie and Griffin. Thank you very much, Oshie. And to Josh Sanger for helping put the podcast together and everybody at the Closer Artists team. Now, most importantly, I need to thank all of you for pressing play and uh, meeting me here each week. If you are new to the show, I, I really recommend you go back and check out the other episodes. I kind of find with podcasts I listen to, the episodes I love most always seem to be the people that I know the least about before I press play or or that I wouldn't expect myself to enjoy. So yeah, do go back and dive into some of the older episodes. And all that's left to be said now, I don't know where you're listening to this. You might be travelling to work, travelling home from work, or you naughty little devil, you might be listening to this at work. You might be on a stroll, you might be in the park. 
You might be pushing a trolley around the supermarket. I don't know. But wherever you are, I hope you're happy. I hope you're smiling. Thank you very much for uh, meeting me here. And yeah, see you next time. Bye. Turn your distractions off and discover your new favorite podcast. This is Bose Recommends. Hi, guys. I'm Nat Coombs from the NFL show with Nat Coombs. Yep, that was a title that took us hours to come up with. We're thrilled to be involved with Bose Recommends because, frankly, we are having a great time making this show. We drop episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, and the clue is very much in the title. We're all about the NFL. I'm joined each episode by terrific guests from both sides of the pond, players past and present, journalists, comedians, writers, you name it. If they love NFL, they're in. So what are you waiting for? Get involved. Acast, iTunes, all your favorite podcatchers. It'll be good to have you with us. Enjoy your new favorite podcast without distractions. Discover how at Bose.co.uk. Bose. Focus. On.